<laughs> All right. Welcome uh, to Freightonomics this week. Head of Freight Market Intelligence, Zach Strickland, here with you, as well as the return of the great chief economist, Anthony Smith, fresh off of his trip to New Orleans. Welcome back. Thank you. Tony Mulvey filled in for you last week, did a <laughs> arguably a better job. But, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's you know, he's, you set the bar relatively low. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, so uh, this week has been action packed with economic releases. And I think we're still struggling with this concept of bottoming. That seems to be the recurring theme is like we have this like cautious optimism. Yeah. You know, economically speaking and transportation wise, we've it's already been kind of like felt like we're already like deep in mm-hmm. a freight recession, like volumes are down, spot rates are down, et cetera. But economically, we've been kind of holding back a little bit like it hadn't been like it's been like inflation. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I don't know if you've heard of it. No, 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 no. It's all been about inflation and increasing rates to get that under control. We had a little bit of an economic dip last year that we was it a recession? I'm calling it one, but I, a lot of people said it wasn't because employment was so high and other factors didn't. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that because, you know what, if that wasn't a recession, you know, that's, I don't know what a recession is anymore right. and what the correct requirements are going to be, what employment has to be in order to kind of get that classification. Yeah. Um, but I, I would say it was. I mean, just briefly, ever so slightly. It's Man, stop, don't change the game on us now. Don't change the definition. <laughs> but anyway, we're going we're gonna to break down. So we've got a lot of macro releases that we, I want to discuss. I have a lot of questions for you today, Anthony yes. Smith. So we're going to dive deeper into the economy. But first off, let's get it started with our... Uh, our freight in two. Market in two. Let's do it. Count me in. Let's do Three. it. Three. Two, one, go. All right. First up, I told you guys, if you if you don't see this coming yet, I can't help you. OTVI, Outbound Tender Volume Index, first on the docket. This is our demand side indicator uh, that shows you the, it measures the total number of requests by shipper to carrier for truckload capacity. The higher this goes, the higher the demand is. If you can see that white line there, that is our current year's worth of demand. It hasn't really moved that much in January, February, hence some cautious optimism around the market. January and February tend to be the slowest markets or months of the year for freight movement, freight volume, and it just isn't really dropping significantly off of November, December, which are typically much stronger months for freight volume. Uh, We're still arguably above uh, 2019, 2020 levels. So theoretically, we haven't really bottomed to the extent that we have, but if you see a little tick up there at the end, definitely worth watching as we approach March. Let's go to the next one. Tender rejection rates, of course, the measure of how available is capacity and the contracted space here. Total number of rejected tenders is about 3.3% right now. All-time lows. Uh, no signs of any kind of tightening showing up here. So plenty of trucks available. Shippers have no trouble getting capacity at this point in time. Anything under 6% is deflationary for rates, and we are well below that. Next up, let's move to our next chart. This is a little different. OTBI by state. 
Demand is kind of flat, but we did see that little tick up, so I wanted to look into it. If you look at OTVI by state here, weekly changes in percentages, Arizona, Michigan showing up pretty large increases by state. Texas, California, the two largest going down. Let's move into the next one because I already took a, a peek at this and I had to keep it fast. Length of haul increase in the shortest length of haul for loads moving under 100 miles. So that little uptick. Come out of Phoenix, probably short haul warehouse repositioning. Ding, ding. I mean, you always kind of like, it's always fascinating to me when we see these movements and how applicable are they to the greater, larger scale. So when you have, and I just knew this and I knew I didn't have time to go into the, the full transition from state to length of haul situation. So I just pulled up the length of haul chart there to show that, you know, the orange line at the end, that's the, shortest length of haul COTVI jumping up. Your longer lengths of haul up there, really flat to down still. So short haul lengths of haul have a minimal impact to overall capacity, which is why I'm not going to sound the red flag. Hey, demand, all is well, all is well. No, we're still, still a very soft market. Warehouse repositioning is probably going to be a recurring theme throughout the year. Inventory levels, you know, I talked about him last week with Tony. We need to get Dr. Rogers out here yes. to break the LMI down because inventory levels growing in the month of January to a 62 versus a 56. That's alarming to me. Yeah. That, that just signals that consumption is still slower than shippers expect it to be, right? Yeah, and I think we also see interesting things when we're looking at what's going on with shipments and imports into the country, right? I mean, we're looking at stuff that uh, Henry Byers has put out. He's yep. what, showing some, uh, definitely some slowdowns and continued drops and falling off cliffs that were predicted many, many months ago. Yeah, we don't have a cliff to fall off anymore, <laughs> but it's still like we're still kind of flowing down the stream. Yeah. You know, it's not really, we're not really quite there yet. So. Let's, uh, there were some relevant stories. There were, there uh, were. Not a lot, because I want to get to our macro discussion here a little bit, but let's break down some of these relevant stories in noobsonomics here. First one up, Todd Maiden covering the CAS uh, shipments indices. Uh, the, you know, CAS, uh, an invoice auditing, freight auditing uh, provider. Uh, so they have a lot of invoice data and they create these indexes out of it. And the biggest, probably the bigger one that everybody knows about is the shipments index. And it combines truckload, intermodal, LTL. Uh, if it's transported, you name it, they count it. Um, and the shipments index was actually relatively strong in January. You know, I just talked about OTVI being relatively strong in January, February. Not as big of a drop seasonally as we would have expected. And it's one of the things that they cite that I found interesting here, Anthony, is that uh, January benefited from a backlog of shipments due to severe winter storms in late December. And I'm just kind of like, all right, <laughs> I mean, maybe a vacation. Uh, but I, the idea of a backlog, I think, is the big takeaway here is that we see these, uh, you know, like automotive mm -hmm. has in the OEMs had this backlog of inventory that was unfinished. Dr. Rogers talked about it. Right Now supply chain have kind of unkinked and it's releasing a lot of that flow out of the system. So some of this, like we just talked about with OTVI, the local length of haul, this is upstream repositioning activity that's kind of keeping transportation markets afloat right now. Yeah. And it's not real. It's not demand driven real, I guess is the point, right? Right. And I think that's one of the parts that we're going to see throughout much of this, uh, the economy is just 
some of that backlog is being worked through. I know when we're looking at upstream, even though we're seeing contraction and when we're looking at things like the ISM PMI, things like that, um, the industrial production at 0%, so stayed flat after really kind of decelerating in the pre previous release. Um, we're, we're definitely still seeing that there are backlogs being worked through upstream. Right. And I think that's also being the case through downstream segments as well. As, we, as you mentioned, some of those uh, repositionings happening, um, even though we are seeing that contraction in the ISM PMI, we have to remember that 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 number was built up so high at a certain point in time that backlogs, even though that is yeah. contracting, they're still being worked through. Same with housing construction. We're seeing contraction here for sure down another, I think it was four plus percent in the latest month. But there's still record number of homes that have been <laughs> authorized but not started or still under construction. And really, you know, some of those homes may not be built in these instances. Yeah, and we're still, so the point is, we're still on the way down from all-time levels. Right. Like, there's still a lot of uh, shrapnel, if you will, uh, being thrown off. And the other big takeaway from this article, which I highly recommend reading, um, is that other modes have now kind of lost some of their share to trucking as mm. trucking capacity has, or truckload capacity has become more available. Intermodal being cited here, huge thing. Uh, intermodal should have gained market share in these type of situations, but with truckload capacity being so affordable now, it's hard to make a sell, uh, mm. you know? And then you've got LTL also losing some share. As LTL kind of benefits uh, from overflow of freight coming from truckload when it's tight, that's eroding back out of LTL, getting back on the trucks because it's it's cheaper at scale. Right. So those are my two big takeaways there. I want to pull up uh, one chart here, the rail versus truck chart. So this is CLAV, accepted tenders only, and our O-rail chart. Uh, loaded container volumes for both 20, 40, uh, you know, 53-footer uh, intermodal containers on the rail. The erosion out of the truckload market is still really strong, right. you know, and if it's being supported by that erosion out of intermodal <laughs> and, and other things like intermodal is down 8% year over year, uh, CLAV is down, what, 18% year over year. <sighs> this is a tough sell to me to be like, okay, things are okay. Right. Like, I, I know we were, we're still coming down from all-time highs, like you said. But I, it's it's kind of like I think we're we might be positioning this erosion kind of too positive. Mm. Like I think we're still in a downswing that has not yet found its full bottom, right? Oh, I, I completely agree, and I think we're looking at you know different other other aspects, and we're looking at even of course macroeconomic things. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's this expectation that once we find a bottom that you know we're just going to continue to just kind of ease up. But I think even in that this is, you know, two steps ahead here. I think there's even that risk of that falling again. They call that, you know, almost like a dead cap bounce. Yeah. Once you start to see, okay, a little bit of recovery, then that drop once again. That's what I kind of feel like we might be setting up for is that dead cat bounce as the financial sector likes to call it. But uh, moving on, I want to cover this <laughs> stuff real quick because I want to get to some of these things with retail sales and whatnot. Um, Freightway, uh, PAM Transportation, earnings report. So the only big takeaway here, this, this company had big revenue increase. It was like 13%, but they had an acquisition. Okay. So it's going to noise that up. They did, a, this in this acquisition, they acquired a 320-truck carrier. Uh, but they grew their fleet uh, by more than like 500 trucks. <laughs> so they added trucks in addition to that. Guess what their OR did, Anthony? What's that? 
fell off a cliff. <laughs> Pam had a 79 OR last year, this uh, fourth quarter last year. It fell all the way down to an 86 uh, and adjusted at a consolidated level, but their trucking OR fell from a 79 to a 91. Wow. That's a, almost a 1,200 basis point collapse, and it's because they're adding capacity <laughs> when they should be when the market is loosening, right. it's the worst thing you could do as a, as a carrier. So you, you've heard me talk about this. Don't end trucks when the market's collapsing. And, and, and when this does happen, it's Consolidation almost like you think. <laughs> well, it is fine. But, but when this happens, it makes me think, you know, do they see something that I don't see? Well, which I'm sure they do, but to that extent, well, I don't These decisions, so. of course, are made months in advance. Mm-hmm. It's not like they could make them, you know, they didn't make them in the fourth quarter. They probably right. made them months. And the acquisition absolutely... No, uh, I have no criticism of that whatsoever. That's removing competition from the space. Um, but they still had a 91 OR, which for trucking is still good. Right. Like that's right. still really good historically to be. All right. Moving on from that. This is probably the most interesting article of the week. John Paul Hampstead wrote this covering uh, Uber Freight expects broad-based volume recession in 2023. My sentiments are echoed in this mm-hmm. at this article. I think your sentiments are also echoed in this article very thoroughly. There's a lot of macroeconomic kind of dialogue inside of it. And the one macroeco- the one thing that's really trucking centric that stands out is the new authorities. This is the big one of the biggest questions I personally get asked is that he addresses uh, Uber Freight addresses this new authority reduction, basically where revocations, this is kind of a FMCSA figure. There's the chart right there. So new authorities getting applied for, that's a long process, that's in the blue line. The net revocations is in the black line. Net revocations basically is where exits happen. Uh, That's that's basically a good correlation for capacity leaving the market. It is spiking, new authority applications are plummeting. We're still at that point where we see capacity growing. <laughs> but you see the speed with which this thing has turned towards the end of 2023. It is remarkable. Right. And this is only going to get worse. So one of the big takeaways from this article is that he doesn't see any reason for demand to really pick back up. But the supply side contraction is so dramatic and so deep and we're in a cycle that is probably going to be a little protracted. That capacity side is going to correct so fast that any demand inflection towards the back half of the year could be a lot more pronounced than it might normally be. Yeah, and I think, I mean, when we're looking at things like this, one of the big things that I have a concern about is, um, of course, we were talking about not too long ago, we have to get Zach Rogers around mm-hmm. up here to talk about some of those inventory levels and what's going on there. Um, the value of the U.S. dollar, so looking at, you know, on a, on a global scale, um, when we're looking at the dollar index and that dollar compared to other baskets of currencies, um, that dollar index is weakening. We're seeing the trend is moving downward. And so we're looking at any kind of replenishment, pull forward for any kind of demand that would return or kind of start to pick up towards the latter half of the year or going into 2024 even. That's way far out there. That's going to be even more expensive and inflationary building on top of that. Yeah, yeah and that's like... I don't know. We, we have all these macroeconomic figures, Anthony. So I, I, and we really do a poor job of displaying them adjusted for inflation. Mm. It's a very difficult thing to do. I do my own little napkin math. I made that personal consumption expenditures chart a few weeks ago. Um, 
it's not the right way to do it. <laughs> uh, but it is a, a reasonable estimate of kind of normalizing values over the period of time of volatility that we've had. Right. You know, I, I don't feel terrible about it. I just, it's directionally good. It's not as precise as I'd like it to be as somebody that respects numbers. But um, I want to discuss, so a lot of economic reports mm-hmm. came out and they were relatively, they were positioned in, a, in somewhat positive lights. I was reading the Wall Street Journal stuff and around some of these macroeconomic releases. And a large portion of them, like the retail sales, for instance, that I want to dive into first, up 3% for the month. This figure is not adjusted for inflation, but it is seasonally adjusted. That maddens me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That maddens me because we're not getting... We're not getting the, the realest value possible, Anthony. And explain to me how I can, how, I, how do I view this 3%? So I, I think um, there's a lot of talks around looking at this 3% number as, hey, this is a sign that the economy is still robust, that consumers are still strong, that there is a lot of positivity and optimism to go out there. And I think that's what makes some of reading through some of the economic noise so confusing at times right. is because you can make a legitimate argument right now that we're in a good place, that we're strong and that there's nothing to worry about. Then you can also make that same argument that that we're in a rough place and that things are looking really shaky and really concerning right now. And I think that's the that's really where all of the, the disconnect comes from because two very logically sound folks can make different opinions and both be very correct in their stance right now. And, and right now when I'm looking at the retail sales number, as you mentioned, not adjusted for inflation, which is concerning because there are some geniuses at the Census Bureau that can make this happen. And so when we're looking at this, um, one of the big things that I saw when I saw this number was, oh, that's concerning um, that the number is that high because we're seeing what the savings rate is at. You know, I think you and Tony chatted about some of it last uh, episode last week. The savings rate is still near, you know, record lows that we haven't seen in nearly 15 years. The credit card utilization it still has some way to go, but it's still at all times high and it's still continuing to climb. And so really the saving grace right now, of course, is that jobs market. And so I don't want that to be the hat to hang our, our you know, that to be the hook to ha- hang our hats on because that's a concerning trend in itself because we're looking at the uh, jobs that are offered. They're not the most higher paying jobs. A lot of it's going to be around services, hospitality, mm-hmm. leisure, things like that. It's not going to be a lot of the high end tech jobs yeah. that we're seeing laid off right now that were, of course, overly inflated to a a high extent. And those, and, and that's, that's kind of my point here is that, you know, you really have to be more focused on some of these granular aspects of these figures. These aggregate figures macroeconomically are noisy as they can get right. at this point. We have a very uneven, and even Uber Freight points this out, it's an extremely uneven situation in the economy right now. You have automotive that's having this backlog situation where they're clearing out all their old inventory that's been sitting for a year. Uh, then you've got you know people returning to services, so hospitality sectors kind of rehiring en masse. Except you've got this back end like goods economy that's dying on the vine because right. people aren't buying stuff anymore, which subsequently may have a lagged impact to the hospitality sector because that's what these people make money off of in the jobs market, right. which the jobs market is getting propped up by people getting hired in the hospitality sector. <laughs> so it's this weird like backwards, forwards economic situation right now where you can't tell if the cat's wagging the tail or the tail's wagging the dog or or what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think 
that's the concerning part is because it's all kind of being propped up. And then the other, I think, concerning part is the mentality of employers. So, of course, I talk about it from time to time, but the employers that, you know, had to just, you know, lay off and furlough some, a lot of folks throughout the pandemic, they're in a completely different mindset now because they had to go through the, the, the trials of, all right, now i got to pull pe- put people back in. I have to go through training. All right, now the great resignation's happening. Okay, now quiet quitting's happening. Okay, I- I'm just struggling to get labor. Now what we're seeing, I think, or what we're going to see is that folks are going to start to hold on to labor a little bit longer than they would have, and that's going to make it a little bit harder on margins that start to potentially erode because they don't want to look at the writing on the wall that might already be there. And so they might hold on to labor a little bit longer than what they should have, and that could cause a little bit more pronounced um, layoffs as they continue to kind of uh. roll out and peel off here because a lot of employers don't want to uh, let people go because of the struggles that they went through already throughout the pandemic. Also, employment is usually the last one to kind of show, and it's not a leading indicator to to really kind of show some of that that strength overall. And so I think that's gonna be a huge concern as well. Yeah, employment sector definitely lags everything. Just go to your human resources director and ask them how how quick of a cycle that is. Um, uh, So CPI came out as well. Obviously, this has been the headline figure that has been, if you don't even know anything about economics, inflation, relatively high. It comes out and it was positioned in a way to me that was kind of like, oh, things are still, the Fed's rate increases haven't done as much as they need to. The economy's doing stronger than it should be. Mm-hmm. Break down the CPI reading this uh, for this last month. Yeah, so the CPI, essentially what we saw was for January, an increase of 0.5% for all items, um, giving us a annual figure of 6.4% overall. Um, We're looking at the CPI, essentially we saw an increase subtly all over across, pretty much across the board. Downward movement, but uh, was for fuel oil, that was down 1.2%. Downward movement for used cars and trucks, that was down 1.9% and medical care services that was down 0.7%. Um, I think the big thing was that a lot of folks were expecting a, a, a larger decline than what we did see on a month to month or on an annual level. We did see, I guess, some slight easing, but really what we saw was that there is still some um, significant inflationary pressures here um, still to be fought off. Yeah, and, and but some of the things that you're talking about here, fuel oil, used cars and trucks, mm-hmm. like that doesn't feel like a strong, are, are we, are we comping kind of to a bad, do we have a bad year over year kind of set up in terms of comparing things right now? Like things were kind of depressed. Like I feel like inflation really was a slow crawl at this point. Like it didn't really show up in mass until March-ish. Yeah. <laughs> like it was, it took it a minute to get going. So I feel like we're going to cross some border here in a few months where all of a sudden we will see that detraction because the comp is is so much more favorable. Yeah, and I think that's going to be a, a dangerous part there because I think when we see that, when we start to cross over into, all right, now the year-over-year comps are getting a little bit more difficult, I think the expectation or the, the initial thought will be, hey, we're, we're doing this thing, we're, we're, we're winning, and essentially we're just having more difficult comps to go up mm-hmm. against. And I think that's going to be a, a tricky one. And when I mentioned the 6.4% on a year-over-year level, there was also another 6.4% for a macro update, and that was around, back again, retail sales. That was up 6.4%. Not saying that it's a one-to-one movement, but really that report not being adjusted for inflation being up 6.4% for the year. Now we're seeing the CPI report up 6.4% over the last 12 months. It, it gets a little bit, you know, a little bit hazy there. 
when you're looking at the overall growth there. And the other big thing around inflationary pressures is that um, the, the Fed, of course, wants to tamp down inflation on all areas as much as it can. But the tricky part is, is really getting inflationary pressures reeled back in for services. Um, that's a little bit harder one to kind of get back into the box here because goods, supply, demand, make more, make less, become more efficient at making those goods, um, kill off, you know, demand for some of that goods for interest rates. Services gets a little bit more tricky there. Yeah, and, and the f- uh, funds rate doesn't really directly influence services inflation, right? right? You're basically just saying, I'm trying to take as much money out of the system as possible so you don't spend it. Right. I would rather you incentivize me to save, though, because that seems to be the one thing that is lacking from this equation is we haven't seen the same re- like resurgence in savings rates because banks aren't raising their interest rates that they're offering for these deposit accounts or for whatever it is that encourages investment, because that's really what you want. You want long-term investment to begin here. When you raise those interest rates, you want the cost of funds to kind of grow so that people aren't going out and inflating the price of everyday availability goods, right? right? Yeah, and, and there's no incentive there. And that was, that was going to be the, the next point I made there, was that there's no incentive to save. And so um, the inflationary pressures really started to build up in a very interesting way. And, and you know, even before March, uh, when we start to see those the, the traditional levels of inflation through the CPI and things like that, it was already starting to hit other areas when you're talking about assets, when you're talking mm-hmm. about um, stocks, when you're talking about crypto, when we're looking at those types of areas. That was already, I think, a preceding indicator of inflation that a lot of folks weren't really kind of ready right. to accept just yet. And then it starts peeling into everyday lives and goods and things like that. Yeah, you're right. They're throwing money into crypto instead of their savings accounts because the crypto offers a better return. <laughs> it did at the time. It did. It doesn't anymore. Uh, don't do that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we still got a long ways to go. Anything you're looking for next week? Uh, everything. 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 Oh, man. <laughs> Keep looking. Uh, big week of release for that macroeconomic data. Thank you, of course, for tuning in or listening to our show. We are here at noon every Thursday. 